Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Infinite Worlds podcast. I'm your host, Winston Ward, publisher of Infinite Worlds magazine. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Nick the Tooth. All right, here we are, another episode. I am so pumped. It feels like it's been like almost freaking three, four weeks, which it probably has. Yeah, I know yeah you, it's, I know it's been a while. You've been busy, right? Yeah, yeah. They, I got the job as a mail carrier, and it's it's long hours, man. It's it's a lot of work. Oh my gosh. I don't know if I mentioned this on our last episode or not, but I'm working six days a week, and I currently walk 17 miles every shift. Oh my gosh. Actually, I have had yesterday and today off because I injured my foot slightly, just a minor injury or whatever. But if I kept walking on it, it would have gotten worse. So they sent me home to heal it. Oh, well, I tell you what, I, I, we often catch up and we talk about this and that and what we're reading and what sci-fi. And so this kind of leads in perfect with your injury because I've been absolutely immersed and what's going on with AI. And oh, yeah. and I was thinking about robotics. I'm like, well, it, maybe we can get some kind of a robot to replace you soon. <laughs> and they actually talked about that during our orientation. They talked about how like we have the ultimate job security because by all estimations, the male delivering robots still another 30 or 40 years out. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, I'll definitely be retired, but I might be dead by then. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know about robotics, man, but this whole thing with the AI and the, I have to tell you, man, when the whole chat GPT thing first surfaced, I was very intrigued, but I was like, oh, it's kind of ridiculous. It's not gonna, it's really not that advanced. And then I started listening to that one reporter who talked about how ChatGPT tried to seduce him and tell him to leave his life <laughs> and all that. And it was, and then I learned more about like how it actually works is that the large language models are actually, they're just predictive algorithms in which, right. So they scour like the whole internet and then they just kind of say, okay, well, if the cat sat on the, What's the most predictive thing? So anyways, but then Winston, I started listening to podcasts with preeminent AI scientists like Max Tegmark. And I listened to another one. There was a guy on, on Lex Friedman. Have you ever heard of the Lex Friedman podcast? Yeah, I have. I have. I've actually listened to it. I mean, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, but I, have to, I actually have heard some snippets from this one. So, yeah, so Lex is a coder, right? He's a computer coder, and he does these podcasts where they're literally four hours long. So right. They are That's th- why I'm not listening to whole episodes. I mean, it now. is insane to listen to one of his podcasts. It is holy moly. But so he had this guy on there on March 30th, e- Elizer Yudkowski. He's another preeminent AI researcher. So he had Max Tegmark. I think it was Max Tegmark on there, who's in one and then the other. And both of them said the same thing. And this guy that I listened to last night, this Eliza, he said, we have to stop right now, right now, not tomorrow, right now. We cannot, the danger is so great. He's, we already don't even understand what this thing is doing. 
And he's in the, and I think it was Max Tegmark said, listen, we have four, we have three rules. We have to make sure if we have an AI that we cannot allow this to happen. We cannot allow it to scour the internet, right? Because there's too much information that can glean that we can't keep hold of it. And we cannot let it understand how to persuade humans and how to manipulate us. And he said, and most importantly, we cannot allow it to learn how to code. No, oh, I mean, that's <laughs> the coding part is, I mean, I don't even think that's even a leap really at this point. No, he said, we've already done all three. Yeah, yeah. He said, because the algorithms, you have to understand something. We already encountered chat GPT one, so to speak, like first generation AI. And it is like the social media algorithms and they've already won. Round one, we lost. They got a president elected. We've got, these things are so powerful. They control us and we don't even admit it to ourselves. So YouTube algorithms, all that, we already lost that. And then he's, and we can't allow it to scour the internet. Well, that's what this thing does. And he said, and number three, we can't allow it to code. He said, it already codes better than humans. Right, right. And so Lex Friedman was talking about how he's, I am almost in tears because I know that I spent my life like learning how to code and teaching myself this valuable skill that is now it's over. It's obsolete. Yeah. He's in three, four years. There'll be no more coders because we'll just be able to say, Hey, create a mortal Kombat game with these. Here's a couple photos of the characters I want. And the thing will just spit it out. Right. Instantaneously, not tomorrow. Right. Instantaneously. And (laughs) I was reading a thread about how the direction of media for like actors is going to be that actors will be able to sell their likeness instead of actually acting in anything. They can just sell their likeness and sell their voice. And then AI will be able to create movies starring them. That's exactly what this writer's strike is about right now. Consumers will be able to custom order movies that will be written by AI and starring whatever actors they want and even have themselves in it. They can just be like, oh, you know what? I want to be in a Jurassic Park sequel starring The Rock and the AI will take a couple of hours. And me. Yeah, and yeah, me. And like, I, I want myself in it. And then the AI will come back with a Jurassic Park, just like they said. And that's sort of the direction it's going. The dangers there, not just, okay, obviously we talk, we've talked about Terminator and we've talked about I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. We've talked about all these different stories where the artificial intelligence rebels and destroys human society. That's a pretty common theme in science fiction, but you know, not with a bang, but with a whimper, I guess. They don't need to nuke us if they could just supplant us. No. Basically turn us into nothing but consumers. You know what I mean? They're doing all of the productivity. Then we're at their mercy at that point. Yeah. It's not necessarily about that. It needs to nuke us, although it could, although it could, that's that, although it could, but the thing that they were saying, what I found really interesting and we'll kind of leave almost leave because this is interesting. I mean, dude, we've been kind of building and talking about this. This is we're. it's almost like it should be like three episodes long because the reality is that science fiction is so incredible because it's a philosophical paradigm through which we can investigate, like we say, what it means to be human, but also where we're going. Right. And what's crazy is right now, right today, we need to wake up because we are now there. 
<laughs> and that yeah, is, yeah. that's where it's giving me chills because I'm just starting to realize, oh my God, it's really here. We are at the beginning potentially of Skynet. Now, listen, I think, here's what I think we are at the beginning of Skynet, the Terminator. The question is, does this thing turn out to be benign or does it turn out to be where we can't control it and it's just off the rails doing its thing? The way, listen, the way that it was described on with Lex, with this Eliza or whatever his name is, what he said is he said, listen, we know for 100% in 30 years, within 30 years, maybe sooner, within 30 years, an alien race is going to land on Earth. Okay, and we are not prepared for it and we're not preparing for it. And so that alien race is this artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's, it's coming and we don't know whether it's benign or whether it's going to be malignant. Kind of interesting, right? <laughs> All of this always reminds me of this really famous viral tweet by Alex Blackman, who's a writer and game designer. And he's worked at The Onion and done all sorts of stuff. But he has this really famous tweet that reads, Sci-fi author. In my book, I invented the Torment Nexus as a cautionary tale. Tech company. At long last, we have created the Torment Nexus from the classic sci-fi novel, Don't Create the Torment Nexus. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's what these guys are talking about. That Listen, everybody's running headlong into this thing without why are they doing it? Because they can, just like with Oppenheimer and the bomb. Yeah, we're doing it because we want to do it. Because it can be done. And that's what we're doing. We're creating this alien race that's coming and we don't know what the fuck they're going to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> this is a good intro. It's important to talk about this because it is uh, becoming more and more central to our lives as human beings. And especially in the science fiction realm, the science fact realm. Yeah. And hold on. One more thing, though, too. And I think this is really important is that. We don't have a roadmap like for where we're going right now. That's what's so kind of scary and daunting. The only roadmap that we have is science fiction. Right. That is how it it has been our roadmap for the development of technology and science since its inception. Yeah. Are we going in the direction of her? The movie Her with with Joaquin Phoenix, where it's going to be like an AI companion that kind of is weird. And are we going in the direction of Ex Machina? where this thing is going to lock us in. There are definitely plenty of cautionary tales in science fiction about this. We mentioned several examples, but there are hopeful examples as well. There's data from Star Trek. We did did the AI episode, folks, and if you guys are more interested, if you haven't listened to the whole series yet and you're interested in this subject, go back and check out the AI episode. That was one where we kind of talked about this, even though since we've recorded that episode, AI has... (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's only been like a year since we recorded that episode and it's already yeah it's already become a whole different ball game let's leave that for now i think we're gonna actually revisit that topic a little bit here in this episode i'll i've got a pen in that real quick let's talk about things you've been reading and watching you go first let me know what you all right reading. well i finally finished the doomsday book which is a history based time travel novel by connie willis took me forever. It's a really long book. And it was pretty good. Definitely a little bit more period piece than I normally read, but enjoyed it. Then I read Radio Free Albemuth by Philip K. Dick, which is sort of another retelling. Towards the end of his career, he started kind of retelling the same story, 
about his own psychological break. And this is like a different fictionalized version of all of the conspiracy theories and ideas that he had in his mind after his psychological break in the early 70s. And in this one, he is the narrator as himself. And all of the events of the psychological break are projected onto a fictional best friend slash ex-roommate. And all of those things that happened to Philip K. Dick himself happened to this friend instead. So it, it was a really, I kind of liked it. It's basically the story of Vallis, but again, but told differently. It was originally unpublished and then didn't get published until posthumously. But I really liked it. I liked it better than Vallis. Oh, wow. And then now I've switched gears a little bit and I'm writing a Western novel, Western horror novel. I just hit 40,000 words. Wow. Yesterday. And so to kind of prepare myself for that, I'm reading Lonesome Dove, the novel, and I said I didn't read period pieces usually, but I guess I, I exclude westerns from period pieces for some reason. Dude, someone just told me about that book, and they're like, it's amazing. It's really goddamn awesome, I have to say. It's, what surprised me the most is how clever it is. Like The, char- like the writing mm. itself is very, the things that the characters say make me laugh all the time, like throughout. Oh, wow. It's got a bunch of really great one-liners. And it kind of, have you ever read any Tom Robbins? A little bit of Tom Robbins. Yeah, really funny. Well, Tom Robbins has this thing where he has like clever, kind of jokey, snarky yes. things in a lot, like throughout his book. This is kind of, in a way, it kind of reminds me of the Western version of that, but in nowhere near as snarky. Like it feels a little more natural, but it kind of reminds me of that. And I'm about halfway through it now and it's been something else. And it's definitely giving me like uh, some inspiration for the, what my own writing for sure. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. That's rad. What about you? Anything at all? I am. Yeah. I just finished Kurt Vonnegut's Sirens of Titan. Yeah, that's a great yeah. one. I love that book. <laughs> that, I don't know why I slept on that for so long, but it was really cool. Really enjoyable. He's, he's just got such a unique kind of, again, snarky style that, yeah, yeah. but it's cool, man. It was really cool. And then on watching, I watched on Apple TV, there's a series called Hello Tomorrow. And it's really, dude, it's so clever. It's a set in the like an alternate future or an alternate history. I don't want to say future because they don't, I don't really know what time it is, but it's kind of in the 50s with jetpacks. And all the things that we thought would be back then. Like retro future? Yes, it's all retro future. It's all retro future. And it's, I'm not going to finish it. It's cool. I I recommend like watching the the first episode just to see the set pieces and all that. But after that, it didn't really, I kind of, yeah, I kind of fizzled out for me. So luckily the AI will probably write you something else. I'm going to ask for, I want retro future, alternate history, 1950, with the characters from Akira as samurai. All right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Give me everything I want. All right. Okay. So we're going to go ahead. I mean, that was a bit, that was a good catching up. It has been a little while, so we got to catch up. And it's a warranted one with yeah, the, is, kind of welcoming our new or alien invaders 30 years in the future, but welcome. Rolling out the welcome mat. Yeah. <laughs> I, for one, welcome our new AI overlords. <laughs> okay. So our subject for today is not exactly tangential to this exactly, but we'll, I'll, we'll definitely lace it together. You'll see. But we're going to be talking about X-Men, the X-Men comics. And for this one, I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time. I'm a 
grew up as a really big X-Men fan. I haven't really read comics in a long time and the movies are pretty hit or miss for the most part, even though there are a couple of very good X-Men movies, but by and large, they're just kind of whatever. So it's been a while since I've had a lot of investment in the universe, but they were really formative for me as a youngster. So I really wanted to do this one. And we've talked kind of a little bit about superhero versus science fiction, about how the superhero, comic superhero stuff is a little... I mean, even though most superhero stuff is science fiction in nature. Not all comic stuff is science fiction in nature, but most of it is. Superman, Iron Man, uh, the Fantastic Four, X-Men. All of this is science fiction in nature. But they coexist with these non-science fiction characters like Thor and Doctor Strange and Swamp Thing, even though we, I don't know if we've talked about Swamp Thing on this podcast, but I think we've talked about it at some point, but Swamp Thing has like a science fiction backstory and a fantasy mystical backstory. Yeah. Two different backstories for the same character. One's sci-fi and one's not. Anyway, but why X-Men? Why do we pick X-Men instead of any of the other science fiction examples of comic book superhero stories style? It's a good question. I really don't know what exactly it is about the X-Men that speaks so strongly to me as an individual or to other people. It's a massive media franchise. They tried to launch the Fantastic Four franchise, which predates the X-Men and is also a sci-fi property, but it's failed. It's failed. Silver Surfer sci-fi. It's not really taken off, even though I like that stuff too. Okay, real quick, like we always do, let's do a little history lesson. First things first. The X-Men, like many things in comic books and in science fiction, is a ripoff. And so I think we should go ahead and get that out of the way, because I know especially hardcore comic book fans will give me the well actually on this one, but it's true. DC Comics conceived a superhero team called Doom Patrol in the early 1960s, which is very similar to the X-Men in a lot of respects. And like many things in comics, the competing publisher had to do their own version of it. This happens throughout the history of comics. This is not special to the X-Men. This happened in pretty much every superhero franchise has a similar thing going on. There's Flash on one side and the Quicksilver on the other side. There's Namor the Submariner on one side and there's Aquaman on the other side. We just mentioned Swamp Thing. Man-Thing and Swamp Thing were created just like a month apart. Man Thing number one predates Swamp Thing number one by a month. Wow. These two companies, they really are, at the time, at least during like the silver age of comics, there really were two publishers, Marvel and DC. And although there are other publishers now, they're still like the big, the heavy hitters in the industry. And they shared talent sometimes. You know what I mean? So with guys bouncing around back and forth, of course, ideas that were bounced around in one writer's room end up getting bounced around in a different writer's room the competing writer's room, and then there's no way to not have overlapping ideas in such an incestuous business. And that's just the way it is. So as far as like X-Men being a ripoff of Doom Patrol, yeah, so what? That's my attitude towards that. I don't care that Man-Thing predates Swamp-Thing. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. And we've also talked about, not just in comics, but in science fiction in general, about how one idea is based on another idea and so many books are reactions to other books and movies are reactions to books and et cetera, et cetera. We've talked about that tons of times on this podcast and that's just the way this business works. So that being said, Doom Patrol existed in 1963, in early 1963, 
Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, who were like the powerhouse creative team of the Marvel comics in the early 60s, they were responsible for creating most of the characters I already just mentioned, decided that they wanted to do a new team, kind of, like I said, based somewhat on Doom Patrol. And the idea was, I'll read this quote, this will help explain it. In 2004, Lee recalled, I couldn't have everybody bitten by a radioactive spider or exposed to a gamma ray explosion. So I took the cowardly way out. I said to myself, why don't I just say they're mutants? They're just born that way. And then in 1987, Jack Kirby, okay, we're going to get to one thing real quick. And he said, with the X-Men, I did the natural thing. What do you do with mutants who are just plain boys and girls and certainly not dangerous? You school them, you develop their skills. So I give them a teacher, Professor X. Of course, that was a natural thing to do instead of disorienting or alienating people who are different from us. I made the X-Men part of the human race, which they were. Possibly radiation, if it is beneficial, may create mutants. They'll, da, da, okay, I'm not going to read the whole quote. But the point is that they wanted to, instead of having this outsider who was coming into the human race, Superman, for example, what they wanted to do is just have human beings that were just different. And we should talk a little bit about the ongoing controversy around Stan Lee. Both of these guys are dead now. But a lot of people feel like Stan Lee took a lot of credit for things he didn't do. There was a big property that he was in, kind of took credit for. I can't remember which one. It's slipping my mind now. Yeah, it wasn't Batman. Batman's a DC comic. Yeah, maybe it was. Batman predates most of the other comics, too, because it's from, I think the first issue of Batman was from, like, the 1920s. Oh, or, like, early. That's right. Or the 1930s. But it's, like, hella old. Like, that, that and Superman are both extremely old. Like, Maybe it was Spider-Man. There was one big property that he, like, took credit for, and the, the actual creator just got pushed into the shadows. Well, that happened with the, their relationship. They were a creative team. But Lee being the, he kind of made himself to, into the face of Marvel Comics. Like, he became, kind of became the spokesperson. Mm. Like, when somebody had to appear in these shows yeah. or on commercials or anything like that, it was always Stan Lee. Gotcha. And because he was in that role, he sort of used terms like, I created. Mm. And instead of saying, Me, yeah. myself and Jack Kirby created, or Jack Kirby created. Yeah, that's what it was. And it was true of like lots, not just Spider-Man, even though Spider-Man's an example of one they created together in the Avengers and lots of them. And Stan Lee took a lot of the credit. I wonder if they'll ever do a movie. I mean, they have to, right? Oh, I hope they do. I sure hope they do. Well, we could use ChatGPT and create a movie. Yeah, but, but anyways, no, it would be really cool because it sounds like there's so much conflict. The only problem yet, is that Marvel is such a protected, ah, yeah, highly protected franchise, and now it's owned by yeah. Disney. Now it's owned by Disney. So to get yeah, the right, never gonna allow. Yeah, yeah, to get the rights to do that movie, you'd have to know some people. You know what I mean for sure. Yeah, but it would be so cool, and it would be controversial. And they're probably like, we use Stan Lee's hologram to sell. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> seriously, that's yeah. what it's gonna come to. So I think it's so genius when he decided to make them mutants, and the reason is because it seems to me what what was so genius about that move was that. He created a class of people who are outsiders. It's not the one-off individual. We got a class. Right. And now we could use that as a proxy, an, a metaphor for racism, for sexism, for just being the outsider. So many like people who are nerdy, like myself, you feel like at times like you're an outsider, right? Absolutely. And so you identify with, wait a minute, this isn't just in, you go to school, they've got this school that they go to. I mean, it's really freaking 
he may have done it because he didn't, he no longer wanted to come up with individual origins like that. But just the idea of the mutant thing is, I think that's why it's so huge, right? We're going to definitely circle back around to this. I think this is going to be make up the bulk of this episode, actually, is this discussion. And you're absolutely right. Ah. You're absolutely right. The I think the social justice element of the X-Men plays a huge role in its like staying power and its popularity. And when it was created in the early 60s and uh, like everything that was going on during that time, women's rights. And I think that's why, Winston, you probably have this issue of why is X-Men so much more popular than Doom Patrol? Right. Why is X-Men so much more popular than Fantastic Four? That's why. Because you've got this... And we're definitely going to get back into that, but let me just finish up with the Jack Kirby and uh, Stan Lee thing real quick because I didn't want to, just want to leave that hanging. And then I got a little bit more uh, history and then we'll go we'll jump into all this stuff. Okay, so I just want to say on the turn, the Jack Kirby and Stan Lee thing, I feel like there's a lot of people who take the controversy a little too far and basically say that Stan Lee was not a creative and that he just stole all the ideas from the people that were employed at Marvel, Jack Kirby especially. And I just want to say that I don't, I think that's nonsense. I did. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created a lot of these characters together. Stan Lee had plenty of the ideas himself. Jack Kirby being the actual artist expounded a lot of the, a lot of those ideas and helped in the writer's room a lot and created several characters all on his own. But the idea that Stan Lee didn't do anything that he only just leached off of everybody else and then took all the credit. I don't think that's true. I just want to say that. I think it's, Though he did probably take more credit than he deserved, the idea that he did nothing, don't buy it for a second. Okay, so I just want to get that out of the way. Okay, then real quick, as far as the history of the comic goes, it came out in 1963, and a lot of people don't know this, but it ran from 1963 to 1970 and then was canceled. Because even though it was somewhat popular, it was one of Marvel Comics' least popular franchises in the 60s. And in 1970, they canceled it. And then for four years... They ran only reprints of the comic, like bi-monthly reprints of already existing issues. And during that time, they had some of the characters appearing in other comics. Professor X would appear kind of randomly in like a Fantastic Four comic as like a guest star or whatever. But he individual X-Men comics weren't being created for several years. Then in 1975, they refer to that as like the hidden years of the X-Men, comic book aficionados, call those of the hidden years of the X-Men. But then in 1975, they decided to kind of reboot the franchise. And when they did that, they brought in Lynn Wein, who we've talked about before. He's one of the creators of Swamp Thing, to kind of help revitalize the franchise. And he and Dave Cocker, who we've also talked about, created giant size X-Men number one. And they brought in new characters. The original team of the X-Men was Cyclops, Jean Grey, Angel, Beast, Iceman, and Professor Xavier. And that was basically the team through the 60s. And in 1975, when they did Giant Size X-Men number one, they brought in several new characters, including Wolverine, Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, characters that are, most of these characters already exist, not all of them, but most of these characters already existed. Wolverine had existed in Hulk comics, but a lot of them were created by Lynn Wein. And after they brought in these characters, the comic book took a different sort of like attitude, even though it was still kind of focused on the same concept of more or less civil rights for mutants, which had been like the idea behind it. It took like a much more like hard nose 
cutting edge, slightly more adult feel to it. And then after that, the comic was sort of led more or less by Chris Claremont. And Chris Claremont is responsible for pretty much all of the X-Men plots that we're familiar with. Yeah, this guy is a freaking... Chris Claremont is a genius. Yeah. I mean, you really have to kind of say X-Men, Chris Claremont. Yeah, really. Even even though he came in a good 12 or 15 years after the comic was created and sort of took over, the way we think about X-Men now and the way they're shown in movies and all that, it really is Chris Claremont who's responsible for that, especially like the 80s and 90s are really where they get the most of the plots that make up the film franchise. And Chris Claremont's more or less responsible for all of that stuff. And so, so Chris Claremont, interesting story. He, nerdy kid, came from like an Air Force back or military background, moved all over the place, never could make friends, just got to the point where every time we'd make friends, he would move. This is how he talks about it. And so just a nerdy kid, right? And so he wanted to go his, I think his parents knew Al Jaffe. This is a crazy story from Mad Magazine. And so he's like, when he's like first year in college, 19 years old, he's once looking for kind of an internship. He wants to get into to something with like publishing. And so he's, can you get me a job at Mad Magazine? And Al Jaffe is like, are you crazy? He tells his parents and him. I cannot bring you into the Mad Magazine offices. Your parents will never talk to me again if you knew what was going on. <laughs> so it's probably like party central. Oh, right? yeah. That's what I understood. <laughs> That's what I understood about Mad. Yeah. But then he says, listen, I do know Stan Lee. I can probably get you in over at Marvel. So when he got over to Marvel, they during the interview, he's, listen, I don't even need to be paid. I'm in college. And they're like, oh, then you're hired. And so (laughs) he starts working there and is always kind of like watching and listening. And he's really, I think it started out where he actually wrote a couple, even before this time when he was even younger, some plot ideas and everything. And so it wasn't like he wasn't really into comics. But anyways, while he's there, X-Men had been canceled, right? And no one really kind of wanted to work on it. It was just another property. And he kind of put his hand up. Anybody want to work on it? He said, I want to work on it. I want to work on that. And so they're like, all right, here you go. And it turned out it was like fate. Yeah. And what's crazy about Chris Claremont as a writer is that after they rebooted the series, he was really heavily responsible for the revitalization and the popularization of it and really turned it into the huge monolithic franchise that it's become and created tons of recognizable characters. I won't even go into all of them, but Kitty Pride, Psylocke, Rogue, Sabretooth, just on and on, tons of them. But after having done this for a good 15 years, he then, with Jim Lee, rebooted the franchise again with X-Men number one, which... Number one, right? Yeah, X-Men, yeah. yeah, they rebooted the franchise with X-Men number one in the early 1990s, 1991. And that was one of the largest comic book events in all of comic book history. X-Men number one remains the largest selling individual comic book of all time. And it's after he's already rebooted the franchise and turned it into something great. He does it again towards the end of his run with it. Eight million copies. Unbelievable. How do you sell eight million they were talking about winston about how like they had like when x-men was really doing well like before in that previous period they were doing three four hundred five hundred thousand 
episode per issue sales. How do you jump to 8 million? I don't know. I, I didn't follow it at that time. So tell you tell me, were you following it at that time? Uh, to be completely honest, here's the true story of my like getting into the okay. X-Men. Okay, so the first things first is my dad owned a copy of Wolverine number one. Wow. When I was growing up. And I ruined it because I would not keep my hands off of it. So Wolverine, was it like a standalone issue? Even though at the time Wolverine was a member of the X-Men, he had his own he had his own standalone series as well. Ah, okay. But my okay. dad didn't have the X-Men comics. He just had Wolverine number one, which I read over and over again. And it alludes to the X-Men. Ah, yeah. Okay. So I read it over and over. He wasn't a comic book collector, but he had, my dad had two comic books. He had that, number one of that, and number one of Nam like the Vietnam War comic. Oh, wow. I read them both because as a, I, I was a hungry for reading materials as an eight, nine-year-old. So I ruined, both of those comics are pretty valuable now. They pro- He could probably sell them combined. <laughs> so, but, so I kind of, but that's only scratching the surface of the money I took out of my dad's pocket. <laughs> I was already like somewhat familiar with the concept of the X-Men. And then I moved, I grew up in a pretty small town in, Texas called Argyle, Texas, like a really small town. And most of my activity was going and fishing at the stock pond and wandering around and messing with the cows and that kind of thing. Like I was a pretty outdoor kid. But then I moved in 1993, I moved to a town called Brunswick, Georgia, but in the urban area, even though that's kind of a small town too, it has a lot of urban area. You could call it the hood if you wanted to call it that. I ended up there instead. And because going outside was no longer going and fishing and wandering around and like looking at nature, that had sort of been taken away from me, I guess. I had a fledgling interest in comic books and used to always draw, pretend to draw, that kind of stuff. Where we moved, we were right across from a, used to be a Revco, but then they changed it to a CVS years later, but a pharmacy. So I'd walk across there and buy comic books and started doing that. And even though this was a couple of years later, the X-Men number one, I'd have been about 10 years old at this point, X-Men number one was still on the shelves because it was such a huge seller. And I can tell you exactly why it was so popular. Because of the art. Because of Jim Lee's art. Wow. He's the president, publisher, and CCO of DC Comics now. Wow. The art is incredible. And it did some gimmicky stuff too. It had different covers. The original X-Men number one had different covers because it was all part of a larger art piece. Okay. And different segments of the art piece fit together to create the different covers. So you wanted to collect all the different covers Ah. as a little kid. And so wasn't, didn't the art throughout, like when they relaunched it, didn't it get a lot more experimental and progressive, like even like mixed media, like crayons and different things like 1991 changed comics a lot because they really started experimenting then. Wow. The folding cover of the alternate covers was just the beginning. Soon after that, they had comics that had holographic cards inset onto the cover. Holy shit, that's cool. Especially when you're a 10, 11, 12 year old, which I was at the time, this was highly attractive to a young person. Oh man. And at the same time, and at the same time this is happening, and like I, I went from being an outside kid to being an inside kid, not exactly by choice. At the same time this was happening, the X-Men cartoon show had debuted and was a absolute phenomenon. X-Men the Animated Series was a complete phenomenon, especially for young people of that age. And is widely considered even still to be one of the greatest comic book animated series of all time. That and the Batman animated series, which was on at the same time are considered to be the high point in comic book animated offshoots. 
out of curiosity, I'm going to look up X-Men the Animated Series and see how well it's reviewed. It's got an 8.4 on IMDb, which is a huge rating. It has a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 98% audience score. Wow. Have you gone back and watched any of it? Yeah, it's actually available on Disney Plus right now. And I've watched some of them. And it's a little more crude than I remember. But what really is What do you mean crude? What do you mean the, crude? It's not the animation. When I was a little kid, I was like, oh, this animation is incredible. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, yeah. looking back at it now and some of the one-liners and stuff that I thought were really clever back in the day are not quite as clever as I thought they were. But <laughs> what is important is that the animated series lifts its plots directly from the comic. So all of the social justice, all of the adult themes of the comic are right there in the animated series, not hidden or shielded in any way. They're completely there. Now that we've gone through all that, now let's talk about, you mentioned it right on, because you can't talk about the X-Men without talking about human rights, civil rights, because mm -hmm. it is such a massive theme in this series. Yeah, so mutants are just another class of individuals that are discriminated against. Of course, launched in 1963, it reflects the way black Americans were treated, the way women were treated, the way gay people were treated, and because they were born that way. That's just how they were born. And because they were born different than the mainstream, they become a target. I don't know if you want to jump in here at any point. No, no. I, it's, I'm sitting here and I'm contemplating it. It's, I think that it's wild to me that they stumbled on something like when they created this, like I said, they created this class and there aren't many instances that I could think of in other properties where they've created something where it's, yes, it's all about the individuals, but this has this class and it's what's fascinating for me is how you can overlay that in different like in different areas with women's rights, with gay rights, even. But not yeah. only that, not only social justice, but in like people who feel alienated and who feel on the outside. To me, I think that is why it's such an enduring property and why we've got how many films are out right now? I mean, I, I would think, I, let me see if I can try to figure it out. There were the three original films. Oh boy, I'd say there's something in the neighborhood of 10. Yeah, and how many Wolverine films? How many, you know what I mean? And some of them are like the, what was it, Logan? I mean, that was incredible. Days of Future yeah. Past, I mean. Days of Future Past is excellent. Oh my gosh, it's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorites ever. One of the things that 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 is is interesting to me is that X-Men was kind of a failed property, right? And then Chris, yeah, at first, yes. they, right? They canceled it. Chris Claremont comes in. He resurrects it. It's at a time when they can call on not only like these big social justice issues, but he also goes there with like very individual and kind of heartbreaking stories, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Without a question. And one of the issues that they put out, which is so fascinating, is the Dark Phoenix issue. Right, where they Absolutely. killed off Jean Grey. And yes. do you, were you reading at that time? When did you come across that, when that happened? That happened right before I started reading. After getting turned on to it, I got the Wizard catalog and mm -hmm. just started looking. And I was a back issue fiend 
fiend. At one point, I owned like six long boxes of comics. Oh my Just god! And mostly not for the sake of collecting, even though I fancied that I was going to collect them all. But I read every single comic I bought. Wow! Because of course, the X Men were my first real segue into comics. But I also read. Spider-Man at the time, I really liked Spawn, which was really popular at the time. That's not a science fiction property. That's a fantasy horror property. But I was really into comics at the time. So I I read a lot of, but yeah, I went back and read as much of the X-Men because in the X-Men comics, they reference different storylines all the time. So if you want to know, you have to go read that storyline. So you'd have to get the entire storyline. Well, they say that that, epi- that issue really put, because it was so shocking and had never really been done in comics, that it put X-Men on the map. It had to be crazy, right? It was really funny because, yes, the Dark Phoenix saga was huge. It was huge. But at the time, under Chris Claremont's direction, they put out like six storylines in a row that were all massive successes. Days of Future Past, right? Days of Future Past is another one of his. And when you were talking about the movies that were like good, that was one of his best. That's one of the best movies they made. And it's because the source material is so so fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And then how about the whole Magneto storyline, right? So what's wild about, about Jean Grey and Magneto is what Chris Claremont was willing to do was to say, these characters can become, they're so flawed. I think that's what he was so great at. They're so flawed that we're going to switch their alliances. They're going to transform like Anakin into the either the villain or like Magneto, you're going to, Magneto starts out, right, as a totally sympathetic character, right? In Auschwitz, a victim Right. Of, of Nazism, right? That's one of the best parts about the X-Men franchise is how human they allowed their characters to yes. be. Wolverine, they brought him into the fold, and Chris Claremont developed that character. We talk about anti-heroes on this show quite a bit, you know what I mean? And what makes an anti-hero magnetic is sympathy. Like, you have sympathy for them as a character. And like you said, that completely true with Magneto an anti-hero. He's the bad guy a lot of the time, but later in the comics, he kind of goes back to being a good guy again. He like joins forces with the X-Men. And his ultimate goal, if you watch the movies, if you read the comics, we're kind of skipping around here a little bit. His ultimate goal is to protect mutants from abuse. Exactly. Because of the things he saw in concentration camps. And he doesn't want to see any class of people destroyed, except for, in his mind, the human beings, the regular humans that are hunting down mutants are Nazis. And he wants to see them destroyed. That's right. And so this complexity of character, right, is probably what Chris Claremont, why he's so, it seems to me that he brought something into the comic genre that was so literary and it had not been done before, right? Absolutely. I think that's completely accurate. They took the reboot of the franchise that had kind of become a little more hard-nosed, a little edgier, and really made it ultra complex and ultra human and ultra sympathetic. And yeah, and like you said, in a way that had not been done before. And all, comics as an industry has been playing catch up with this the whole time. Wow. Wow. 
DC tried to do it. It wasn't just them. At the same time, we talked about when we did the episode about the Watchmen. Well, I was just going to ask that. Is uh, Do you think that this was an influence on on Alan Moore? That Absolutely. There's no question. That's There's incredible. no question. That's incredible. That was the direction comics were going, and Alan Moore was a genius at it. Yes. He saw the direction that comics were going, and he's, oh, because let of me do that. Claremont. Because of Chris Claremont, and because wow. of Lynn Weed, and because of Frank Miller Yeah, at the time. Yeah. When you mentioned the spinoff that I told you my dad had, Wolverine number one, and I read it a bunch. Well, that comic was created by Chris Claremont and Frank Miller. Mm, oh, my gosh. Oh, I got to read that. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. As you can imagine, it was extremely compelling. Okay, so we've kind of touched on another thing that I think is really important to talk about while we're talking about the X-Men, and that is the villains. So far, we've hardly even talked about the X-Men, individual mutants that are part of the X-Men. I don't think it's necessarily necessary. I think everybody knows the characters that are on the X-Men. You've got your angel, your archangel, your beast. Everybody knows who they are, or at least for the most part, and difficulties they face. But what makes, I think, this universe so great is the villains they have to go up against. And we talked about Magneto and his complexity of character. But what I think is really fascinating about this universe is two of their main villains, two of their most influential villains, aren't super powered at all. They're not super villains. They have to deal with a senator, Senator Kelly, who's trying to destroy them through legislation. And that's a really big enemy of theirs because they can't go just kick his ass. No. And what makes that character so interesting is that happens in real life to marginalized groups all the time. Exactly. That's so complex. Yeah, there's a Senator Kelly out there for gay people. There's a bunch of Senator Kellys these days out there for gay people, out there for black people, out there for trans people, out there for all of these marginalized groups right now doing to those people what Kelly was doing to the X-Men in the comics in real life. How do you fight him? You can't just be Wolverine and go cut him in half with your claws or blast him with your optic nerve. You know what I mean? Then you're evil. Then you're the bad guy, even though what that person is doing is intentionally hurting you. You kind of have to pause and think about how important what he was doing there was because it's really like a civics lesson for adolescents who are mainly the readers of comics at that time, right? So what you're telling them is saying, you're really instructing them to say, listen, this is the way you're going to go out into society and this is the way society really is. So be prepared. Right. It's almost like reading like when we're 12 and 13 years old, reading 1984 to say, listen, there is a surveillance state out there and the state nationalism is something that will be used against you. So be prepared for when you get out there that you need to keep your eyes open for this. And he did that. And that's it's funny how we're circling back to that whole social, the importance of this comic for society and for social unrest and justice. It's that's pretty fucking cool, man. It's definitely one of the things that makes the comic so popular without question. Like what makes it so enduring? We're getting kind of close to the end here. But before we do, I want to just real quick circle back all the way to the beginning of this episode and talk about one of my personal favorite X-Men villains. So we talked about Senator Kelly and Senator Kelly, through his legislation, was able to get the Sentinel program off the ground. The Sentinels, I don't know if Kelly was originally responsible for the Sentinels, but the Sentinels are a government program to create these robots that were designed to hunt and capture and kill 
mutants. Damn. Right? <laughs> so in order to make the Sentinel program, which I think the Sentinels is just a scary concept to begin with, but in order to make the Sentinel program more efficient, the government created Master Mold. When we did our villains countdown, I mentioned Master Mold. And this character is really scary to me because he is an artificial intelligence that's basically a sentinel factory. Its body is able to produce more sentinels, and those sentinels are able to repair him. And it is completely independent thinking. And it's programmed initially to destroy mutants. That's all it wants to do. And it doesn't care if it kills human beings in the process. It doesn't care at all. Wow. To me, it's an underrated example of artificial intelligence gone awry is Master Mold. They don't use that villain as often as I believe they should. Of course, I don't run X-Men. Master Mold was created in 1965. Wow. All the way back at the beginning. So the idea that artificial intelligence would eventually run away from, I mean, obviously it wasn't the first example, but it predates 2001. I was just thinking that. I was just thinking that. It's like that, to me, 2001 is like, really the pinnacle of, okay, here's AI gone awry. Yeah, that's cool. Wow. It predates, I have no mouth and I must scream. When we talk about these AI gone awry things, Master Mold as a character predates a lot of those things. And it's just a comic book character. But it goes to show you how forward thinking Marvel Comics and especially the X-Men universe really was and is. I'll admit right now that I don't read as many comics as I used to. In fact, I haven't read a new comic in a decade at least. But I'm quite certain that the stuff they're putting out is still cutting edge. I can only imagine. Wow. So That's so cool, man. I watched an interview with Chris Claremont where he talked about how in the end, he's, he has some bitterness about it. It's interesting to think about working for a franchise, a corporate franchise, what becomes like a corporate mm-hmm. franchise like this, giving your life to it, doing your best work, your most influential work, where you're never going to be recognized as the creator, right? And because that was Stanley and Jack Kirby, right? Yes, he is recognized by some within the industry as being so pivotal, but you know, as far as compensation or anything, get your salary and you're done. And then he had some static with Jim Lee and ended up leaving after X-Men won two years, I think, after that. And so it's it's kind of like, a, oh, wow, that's kind of a bittersweet story. Whereas if he had created yeah. X-Men like J.K. Rowling and done it independently or... Right. But I guess that's the way the comic industry is, right? Yeah, it seems to be the way the... But, you know, it's not that... We should just forgive it and allow it to be that way. But it no, is very frustrating. I have, it's not cool. <laughs> I have some, I'm going to use the word friends. The guys who created Prospect were telling me the same sort of thing because even though they created this entire universe themselves and the characters and everything, but because they had to get producers to help them fund the movie, they basically lost the rights to their characters. So they can't independently make a sequel to that. And let me give you being a lawyer for everyone out there who wants to be a creator is that if you want to create in movies, what you need to do is write a short story first, even if it's just a couple pages, that is a summary of your script, then write the script or whatever, but always tell people it was based on the story because then you retain the rights. There are legal Uh. protections 
for source material like that. So that's why. Okay. Yeah. But if you want, dude, the moment the writer for Underworld, remember Underworld, that universe of vampires? And remember there's like how many, six, five, six, and you're starting to talk about, even though those aren't massive movies, you're probably talking about close to half a billion dollars, right? And what happens is, so that creator of that, of Underworld has bemoaned the fact that I don't get paid anything. I wrote the first screenplay and that's it. I'm not a producer. I wasn't. But if that had come from a short story, then he would have retained that forever. All right, man. This is a really good episode. I had a lot of fun with this one. It's one I've been wanting to do for a long time. It kind of feels weird because I feel like there's a lot in the comic book universe that could also make good episodes. And maybe this wasn't necessarily everybody's... I mean, Superman is an alien. We could have done that one, but... It just doesn't speak to me the same way. And I'm sorry if you're a huge Superman fan. I'm not trying to like make you feel bad at all. No, so. I think this one was great for me because I didn't know this, the real history of Chris Claremont. I didn't really understand it, but yet I've loved the X-Men like movies, right? And I've never really gone right. into the comics. But when I started looking at the amount of freaking movies alone, Hollywood blockbusters, not yeah, just well, Hollywood movies, yeah. you're talking about Hollywood blockbusters, yep. you kind of have to say, wait a minute, something is going on here. Yeah, Superman's huge. I understand that. But I don't really watch Superman movies. Right. I've watched a few. They don't do anything for me. But it's really X-Men does. And I right. really wanted to kind of uncover why is that. And I think... It's the social justice issue. Like you, you bringing that up and bringing that to light is, was really cool for me. For me, this was an amazing, this isn't my necessarily the property that I am in love with, but I do love it. So thank okay. you. I thought it was yeah, great. Man. All right, dude. Well, this was a good one, guys. As always, if you have any corrections or anything you want to add, hit us up. Let us know what you think. And we'll be back pretty soon with another one. All right, brother. Thank you so much. Let's do it again. We'll be in touch and we'll figure out what we're going to do next. All right, man. Be easy. All right, brother. Thank you, man. Bye. Guys, if you're enjoying the Infinite Worlds podcast, you could definitely check out more Infinite Worlds related stuff by visiting our website, infiniteworldsmagazine.com. There you can subscribe to Infinite Worlds magazine. It's a full-color, ad-free science fiction magazine featuring stories, comics, and illustrations from creators all over the world. You can also sign up to our mailing list. You can follow us on Instagram at Infinite Worlds Magazine or on Twitter at IW Sci-Fi Mag. Also, you can find Nick the Tooth on Instagram at Nick the Tooth and follow his wild escapades. Theme song was written by Christopher Whitaker and our podcast is produced by Andrew Alonzo. 